Welcome, Red Cube uh, listeners, to today's episode. I'm delighted to be joined by the CEO of Core, Alan Cox. Alan, you are very welcome. Thank you for having me, Carl. Good morning to you. How are you keeping these strange times, Alan? Very good, yeah. I'm full of energy, full of optimism, uh, despite what's going on in the world. You know, I think we, we'll always come through. We've demonstrated that as a world over the last two years, so we'll navigate whatever is in front of us. Fantastic, Alan. Alan, just for the listeners, you might share um, some insights in terms of your own career to date, um, background and, and roles that you, you've had. Sure. Well, I've worked in advertising and marketing communications my whole career. Uh, starting off uh, when I was 18, I joined a full service advertising agency. And as uh, most people did in those days, you kind of started in the, the lower rungs of the ladder, you know, the dispatch department in my case, uh, which was a great way to learn the business from the ground up. Um, then I, I moved around various uh, full service agencies for the first few years of my career and then started to become more senior in terms of responsibility when I got to an organization called Bell, which is part of Ogilvy and our eventually became Ogilvy uh, in Ireland, which is part of uh, WPP. So I was there in that group for a number of years, about eight or nine years eventually became managing director of a media company called The Network within that group. And then after that, uh, I left and, and went to become a chief executive of CARA, which is now called Dentsu. And then 15 years ago, I made the best decision in my career in joining what is now called CORE. And I've been chief executive of CORE for the last 15 years. But as you know, in the last four weeks, I've uh, announced that I'll be leaving CORE uh, in order to pursue a new venture in the area of business transformation. But um, I'm leaving uh, with some sadness, but also a lot of excitement. And uh, it's a fantastic business and a, and a wonderful, wonderful culture. Great, Alan. And we might, uh, we might touch on kind of what's next for Alan during the, during the conversation, which is exciting. Um, Alan, perhaps we're showing our age here, but if we could go back to 2005, 2006, and... Yeah. You're in the CEO role within Core. Um, I guess you're thinking about your culture. You and the leadership team made a decision to go on this great place to work journey. Why bother? What did you hear that encouraged you to to kind of take part in the in the journey? Well, I think I'm always very open to to learning and and uh, you know hearing from people what works and, and uh, from other people's experience. So it was uh, another person within the organization. I think it was Porig Morin, actually, who was our uh, chief financial officer at the time um, and also our HR director, Catherine Fitzgibbon, who uh, came to us with the idea uh, of uh, actually, you know, engaging with the Great Place to Work Institute. So uh, initially, I, I was just very curious to know, you know, what are the benefits, what are the learnings, and, and, and how do we uh, implement plans around that? And the more I started to listen to advice in relation to this, the one sort of silver bullet for me that uh, made sure that th this was something that we were going to do was the relationship between strong workplace cultures, supportive uh, cultures within the workplace and company performance. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there that goes to prove that companies that do well in terms of their culture and, and the strength of their, their work, ways of working uh, actually have higher performance, uh, both in terms of financial performance and customer satisfaction and also retention. 
So those were the areas really that kind of jumped out at me as being really strong advantages of engaging in uh, this journey over and above the obvious uh, strengths uh, and advantages of having a happy bunch of people working together. So, so if we think of the first year then, right, core part of the program was we, we activated the survey. Everyone got a chance to give their thoughts and opinions on, on, on the workplace. Um, and uh, I don't know why, but I can still remember that first sort of uh, session we had with yourself and the leadership team feeding back the results, right? So for the first time then, I guess, we're, we're looking at our data. We're getting to, I guess, hear how people feel in terms of strengths and opportunities of our culture. What was your initial reaction back then when you saw the results for the first time? Well, you know, I think when you see the first set of results, there's always a sense of disappointment because you tend to feel that you're doing better than you are, you know, particularly around the area of communication. And when you think about the fact that we are a communications business, you'd think that that's something that we would absolutely have nailed from day one, but the results actually proved no, that we had an awful lot to learn uh, in terms of communication. But that then sort of disappointment that one feels initially is then turned into a sense of, you know, excitement, I suppose, because gosh, isn't this fantastic information? Isn't this, isn't it brilliant that we have all of these results across, you know, the 65, 70 odd questions. I can't remember how many questions there are now in the survey, but look at the wealth and quality of information that we now have that identifies for us the levers that we need to pull to be better at what we do and better in supporting uh, our incredible people and building a strong a stronger culture in our workplace so initial disappointment and then excitement and i've always given that to uh, advice to people you know when we've been speaking to various other companies over the years and telling them about our experience i always say to them listen when you see the first set of results don't be disappointed just be excited to say isn't it fantastic that we have this knowledge now so excited about the opportunity, I guess, Alan, is a, is a thing there. What, what about um, what about any sceptics that might be there within the leadership team? Is there anything you have to manage there in terms of scepticism around this journey or the improvement piece? Yeah, there, there, there are sceptics. Um, there weren't too many in our place, but there were a few. And I think the, the evidence that I spoke about earlier on, and, and people can Google, you know, uh, and have a look online at the relationship between the best performing companies in the world, or indeed by uh, by country, be it America or the UK, and compared to the stock market indices for those companies, uh, you can see uh, the, the tremendous advantage of being part of this great place to work journey. So once you keep talking to people about the rational benefit to the business, skepticism starts to ebb away. And that's been my experience. That's the, the greatest defense that you can always have when you're discussing this with people who are skeptics. Fantastic, Alan. And, and then, okay, so everyone has given their opinion within the survey, you know, in terms of what they like, what they'd like to see improved. Talk to me about data then into an action plan. You mentioned communication possibly there as an area that we needed to, to focus on. How, how, how do you do that in core data into action? Well, what we do is every time we get the set of results, uh, we have a look uh, in detail at what, what it's telling us. And then we engage with uh, what we call the, the, the Great Place to Work Committee within the organization, which is a, a cross-section, you know, membership of that committee is from a cross-section of the organization 
um, so that and the people on that committee, you know, are are not uh, directors of the organisation. They are people uh, who are from all different parts of core. We discuss with them the results. They take those results away. Uh, they do their own uh, exercise of engaging with other stakeholders within the organisation. They listen to their opinion, and then they come back with some advice to us as to what we can do in the next 12 months to improve our position. Uh, and then what happens is their presentation is made to the board of CORE, and we then look at this uh, advice and then go back and re-engage with the committee with a view to hatching a plan for the next 12 months. And that's been the process that has, we have followed every year uh, over the, the entire journey. Fantastic. So, so there's great ownership from the business around the action plan. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's a great tool. It's, it's a brilliant management tool because it shows you every year how you're doing across the full spectrum of what it is to run a business. And you can then compare and contrast different parts of the organization if your organization is big enough to allow you to compare without uh, losing the confidentiality of the data. Because as you know, you can't, uh, all of the data that is available to an organization is entirely anonymized. Um, so as long as you have departments within a company that allows you to compare the data, you are in a position of tremendous strength to see, well, that part of the organization is doing very well on these metrics, and this part of the organization is doing less well there. What are we doing here that we're not doing there? So it's very rich in terms of the actions that can be established from the data. Right, Alan. So communication, I remember being quite nervous actually about going into a communication company talking about communication being an area for opportunity, right? Can you remember when you got underneath it or when the team got underneath the communication area? What sort of things were you not doing or kind of what, what came back to you around what could be improved? We weren't listening enough. That's, you know, I think communication starts with listening. There's a feeling that you're communicating with your employees or your stakeholders if you're sending them emails or if you're doing, you know, town halls and this and that. But uh, you can hide behind emails, you know, you can feel that you're doing a good job of communicating when in fact you're just talking at people. Um, so the most important aspect of communication is listening and being available to answer the difficult questions. So one of the big changes that we made is we, we have always done these town hall events every couple of months but well, we introduced anonymous questions. Initially, we, we asked people to ask questions, you know, at the end of the, of the presentation, you'd say, anybody in the room got any questions? And of course, be a wall of silence because the difficult and important questions wouldn't be asked in that forum. So we introduced a forum called Ask Alan, where people were able to email their questions uh, anonymized into a, uh, into a particular portal, if you like, where, which I had access to. And then we would read out all of those questions, every single one of them, um, and we would answer them all at the uh, town hall presentation. That made a big difference. We only had one rule. We would answer, we would read out every single question unless it was a question about a person. That was off limits. Everything else was on the table. So that way it made a big difference because I think when you're a leader of an organization, you have to show a sense of vulnerability. Uh, if you like being a bit naked in front, metaphorically, of course, in front of the organization. And I think that builds tremendous trust.
because we were answering every question in real time, people really developed trust in the leadership of the company. And I think that was the most important thing we did. Wow. And um, I guess you got a spectrum of questions, some difficult topics, right? Oh, yeah. And actually, that level of trust, I think, probably was enhanced during the pandemic. When, because prior to the pandemic, people would send in the emails in advance and I would read them out and then answer them at the, at, at the meeting. But there was always a sense or could have been a sense that I had enough time to prepare the answer. Whereas during the pandemic, it was absolutely in real time because we did it, uh, you know, virtually. So the chat line uh, on, on the Teams, uh, the live event call meant people were asking the questions absolutely in real time, anonymized. And so there was no time to prepare any answers. And I think that made a big difference. And so you've got very difficult questions about all kinds of operational issues, financial issues, um, issues about, you know, people's job security, um, you know, very challenging questions, but we, we answered them. And I think people appreciated that. So a real sense of vulnerability there. And so we're yeah. building out action plans. We're improving, we're improving the trust levels within the organization. Core went through quite a large transformation then um, a few years years back. What was that transformation? I suppose, why did you take that on? And can you talk to us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, we decided, you know, about seven years ago now that we needed to do a strategic review and look into the future to see what kind of organization would thrive in our sector. So uh, we did a very full strategic review and as a result of that, we, we decided we needed to change the type of structure of the organization and our proposition to be more future focused and relevant to clients. So before that period, we were a group of eight companies, eight or nine different organizations, different P&Ls, uh, you know, different ways of working, albeit under one sort of cultural umbrella. And uh, we decided that we needed to change from that organization of, of eight companies into one company of eight practices. So we did away with a lot of the, uh, the sub brands and, and we rebranded the organization from core media to core. Wow, what a big change. But uh, we then brought all of the other elements of the business under the same roof, if you like. Uh, broke down all the physical barriers, all the psychological barriers to make the organization into one team. Uh, we did away with the PLs, so we only one PL. We introduced uh, ways and means of collaborating better together. And our proposition then became, you know, offering clients everything that they may need to achieve their business ambitions um, in one unified organization. Wow. So that's really the journey in the nutshell that we went through. And that was challenging because, again, we learned that we weren't communicating as effectively as we thought. And in fact, you gave me one of the best pieces of advice that I heard during all of that time, Carl. You said to me that in your experience, that the and I remember this because I'm quoting you directly now, uh, you said that in your experience in talking to companies that have successfully transformed the ones that were most successful were the ones that were obsessive about communicating at the granular level. Because, uh, you know, it's not just about communicating to all of the organization, even if you're allowing them to ask anonymous questions. You have to bring that right down to individual teams and individuals themselves 
to tell them what their role is going to be in the organization uh, and the transformation, um, what does success look like for them, and to really bring it all the way through the organization and not just have all company events, no matter how interactive they are, empower the middle management team as well to ensure that you know when they're asked questions by their people, that they are not looking like rabbits caught in headlights, that they believe and understand why we're doing it. So that that belief and understanding is then very reassuring to everybody who works with them. So I have to thank you because it helped us course correct because we weren't doing enough of that granular communication. Ours was too much at the all company level, but we changed and became better at that as a result of that insight that you shared with me, Carl. Great, Alan. And uh, the creative were on full, full steam there, core media to, to, to core. And within all of that, there was changes in people's job roles at a senior level, right? There was lots of movement. Um, anything specific you did, Alan, to bring the leadership team along with you? Because there was lots of changes with, the, with that transformation. Yeah, lots and lots of consultation. But the most important thing to remember about co-creation is that you can't go to people uh, throughout the organization, even the leadership group, you know, because we have maybe 45 people in the senior management team across the whole organization. You can't go to those 45 people and say, okay, this is the kind of company we want to become. What, what should we do to get to become that company? Because even though you might think that's the right approach, what that communicates at a human level, a psychological level as people is that the leadership don't know what they're doing. They haven't a clue. So what you have to do is you have to do a lot of the initial thinking to give sort of a wireframe, if you like, of the, the strategic plan that has been developed by, you know, the board of the organization and, uh, and various uh, various consultants, if you like, both internally and externally. And then you bring that wireframe to your wider, wider group. And then you ask for them to help co-create the remainder um, or, you know, talk through options. That's an insight that a lot of people don't realize. And uh, we've learned, we got that piece right because we had made mistakes in a smaller sense where we wanted to change a particular part of an or the organization previously and we came with too much of a blank sheet of paper, it actually really scared people. So that lesson uh, helped us, I suppose, improve uh, our, our way of, of working with the management team from that point on. That's a really interesting insight, Alan, because I think the natural urge would be co-create at the start, get as many people involved. But if we do that, then it can give that sense that maybe we're unsure around direction and where we're going. Yeah, and that's counterintuitive, right? Until you've actually experienced it and you realize, shit, we got that wrong. But once you get underneath the surface of it, it's very clear, isn't it, that it's a mistake to, to because people look to the leadership to lead. You, you can feel almost it's a mistake if you've gone too early around the co-creation. You just there's yeah. you you know it straight away almost. Um, so so building trust every year, um, focusing on improvement and an action plan. Um, any specific moments, Alan, that stand out where the fact that you've been building trust has been useful 
as the business navigates its way forward? Uh, definitely during the pandemic, because we had to make some difficult decisions quickly at the outset, because when the pandemic hit two years ago, it hit our industry like a freight train. Uh, so, you know, overnight uh, levels of activity declined by 40% plus. Uh, and we, no, we had no idea as to how long that would last for. You know, was it going to be a V-shaped recovery, as they call it, or was it going to be, uh, you know, a, a bath-shaped recovery, as Martin Sorrow famously described the last global financial crisis? Um, so we had no idea what we were facing. And we had to make quick decisions and we had to cut uh, back on our overheads and we had to reduce salaries. And that was a very, very challenging period. And I think the trust that we had built in the previous decade or more helped us enormously because people really trusted us to make the right decision. And they knew that we would only be making those decisions as a last resort and that there would be no sense of you know, us being opportunistic. So that was the single biggest example I could share with you of where trust helped enormously an organization navigate a crisis. Of course, you have a proven track record of showing vulnerability, not, not weakness, right, or, or nakedness, um, the metaphorical sense, um, with the team. You've proven you're up for dealing with the difficult questions handling them as best you can so did you feel you were in a rhythm already in terms of going into those communication challenges yeah I, I feel not so much a rhythm but I feel certainly that we had built up a level of trust that I knew that would help us and, and actually that was further cemented by during the presentations where we had to share this news about the salary cuts you know, we again were allowing people in real time to ask really challenging questions around them. And again, so the way that those questions were answered, I think, reaffirmed that level of trust. But one thing I want to say too, Carl, is that, and it's very important in, in the journey of being a great place to work, is that you can never be complacent. And you have to keep improving, keep looking at every set of results with fresh eyes never feel that this is the same cycle repeating itself. There is always hugely valuable information uh, in the survey that needs to be looked at as if it's the first time. People sometimes focus on the league table, you know, and then, you know, they share, oh, look, we're a top 10 company or we, we came number one or we came number three, aren't we great? I always felt that that was the wrong message because it seemed that we were doing it for a different reason to become famous, do you know what I mean? Or to, to achieve a great goal that would be, uh, you know, we could put on our credentials presentation or our CVs. I always felt that was unhelpful. It was very exciting <laughs> on the night, don't get me wrong. And I, and I understand that, but in how we then communicated it to our stakeholders afterwards, I always tried to, to, to turn that, the volume of that down and say, that's not what's important. What's important is that every year we're trying to be a better company to work for. Completely agree, Alan. I actually think the ranking gets in the way of that continuous improvement mindset, yeah. um, which, which, is what it's, which, 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 which is what it's all about. Just one thing, actually, that, that just sparked there, Alan, as you were chatting. Um, there's lots of chat now about remote working, hybrid working, virtual um, physical type of working and, and of course well-being is something that's come up as part of that how do we switch on switch off all, all of that good stuff 
many years ago, Core actually got some feedback around the well-being piece in terms of um, I think people were finding it difficult to switch off, sometimes late emails, things like that. You actually did something really simple, but was quite ahead of the, the curve at that stage. Could you, could you share what that was, Alan? Yeah, it, it was, uh, we decided, and actually I was quite skeptical. I didn't think that this small change would have such a big impact, but it did. So we uh, decided, and it wasn't, like, I think it was probably an idea that maybe you shared with us at the time, because most of the ideas that we have implemented in, in core came from you sharing with us examples of how other companies address certain issues. But we uh, decided to implement a seven to seven policy in relation to emails, internal emails. So we, we said, listen, feel free to send emails to your colleagues between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., but, but don't send any emails after 7 p.m unless both parties agree you know so if you're working on a pitch and both parties are happy to to do that fine but by and large no emails after seven and it had an immediate and long-lasting effect because even though a lot of the emails that were sent after 7 p.m people didn't expect a response to it was a ping of stress you know every time your phone would make a noise or you'd look at it and you'd see a new email there whether you chose to read it or not, it was a ping of stress. It brought you back into the work frame of mind. Removing that, I think, enhanced people's work-life balance, if that's an expression that we still use, enormously. And clients started to, even though it was never intended to be you know, for uh, clients, because we are in a service business and you'd be very nervous about telling clients they can't communicate with you after seven. Uh, but it just began to seep out that this was our way of working and clients started to, you know, to follow that, that code as well uh, when they were communicating with us. It's been enormously helpful. And, you know, people who still want to do emails in the evening, all they have to do is go into their, you know, uh, Microsoft office and, and uh, delay the email being sent until seven o'clock the following morning. So it doesn't stop people, you know, trying to clear their desk of, of emails they want to send. But that was enormously helpful. Such a small change that had a big impact. And, and works both sides because you can still stick with your rhythm if you're getting to emails late at night. It just doesn't land the other side until that set time. Yeah. The only problem is if you, for whatever reason, Apple doesn't have that facility in, uh, in its platform, which is really weird. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're using a PC, Windows-based machine, you can delay your emails being sent, but you can't on an Apple Mac. So I hope uh, Tim Cook is listening. <laughs> Tim, I hope you're listening. We might have to go back to the house phone. Do you remember the, house, the days of the house phone, Alan? They were great days. And yeah. do you know what? Actually, it's funny you say that, Carl, because I was talking to a 16-year-old the other day, and she said to me, and she really meant this, she said, when you were our age, you didn't have telephones. Isn't that right? She actually felt that we had no telephones. There was no such thing as a telephone. No, I'm not talking about mobile phones now. Any telephone. And I, and I thought that was a real window into the echo chamber that, uh, you know, younger people are living in now and that it's all about the now. And, they're, you know, they're, they're just exposed to whatever is in their sphere, their social media sphere. Uh, and there's very little looking back, uh, which does worry me a little bit. Uh, but that's just an aside. Yeah, there should be a reeling back the years course i think in terms of education for young people just to show we're not as old as as, as perhaps they they think but you imagine what that if you take that beyond just the telephone i'd say well well how did we get to the moon then 
And, and you know, nuclear power that was developed in the 1940s. And how did all of those initiatives happen without communication? It just it went for me beyond that particular yeah. piece of the telephone into, gosh, that's really weird that there would be that le- lack of understanding as to uh, history. And I think we always have to think about the past and remember, as we now are seeing in the Ukraine, you know, we have to always remember what went before, because if we don't, history can repeat itself. I'm becoming very philosophical. Sorry, I'm going yeah. off brief. You're absolutely right, Alan. I'm thinking about the past, but actually thinking about the future. What's next for Alan Cox? Well, I'm looking forward very much to setting up my own business uh, later on this year. Um, it's in the area of business transformation. Surprise, surprise. And actually, during the process of, of transforming or being involved in, in the journey within CORE, the change program, discovered that there's a real gap in the market, particularly for SMEs, for having some sort of uh, software that can actually help you on your change management journey. So the, the, the software I'm developing allows organizations to measure their change readiness across 10 different criteria of transformation and then provide solutions so that they can improve their position uh, and start implementing effective plans. So that's what the software will achieve. So I'm very excited about that. And and I'm aiming it at the SME market because I feel that the larger organizations will still go to the big consultancy firms. But one of the other insights about, about transformation or change is that most of the advice out there is about technological change and about the structure of an organization, but not so much around aligning uh, the stakeholders. You know, I read a very interesting report. It's funny, whenever you you look at an issue like this, there always seems to be a 70% figure. You know, you often hear like 70% of uh, mergers and acquisitions fail because of actual cultural misfit. Uh, But I also came across a report from McKinsey that said that 70% of business transformations fail because of a lack of stakeholder alignment. So... That's the piece that I'm focusing on. 70% is the magic number, it seems. Um, it, just to end maybe on some... So is it too early for the name of that new venture, Alan, or has that been... Uh, yeah, because um, I, I'm still building the website. I have registered the company name and all of that, but I suppose until such time as there's a website, I, I'll just keep that under wraps. No problem. Well, we're excited to see what, 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 what comes next there, Alan. Maybe to end on some philosophical questions, right? Are you a Netflix or a TV person or what's what's your I'm both you're both yeah uh, and you know television is still I think the most powerful marketing communications tool available you know people think that uh, we don't watch television live television anymore um, or linear television but we do uh, you know well over half of all viewing now is done still to linear television but you know times are changing of course and uh, the amount of viewing to online uh, platforms is growing and uh, so I, 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 I have the full spectrum. <laughs> I have Disney Plus, I have Amazon Prime, I have Netflix. Um, I also have the Sky Go app uh, on my phone. Um, you know, so I have everything. And um, so I watch uh, linear television and a whole range of other uh, platforms, depending on, on what my mood is or what I'm after. And a different password for each platform, uh, perhaps, no? Yes. Yeah. And actually... It used to be the case, but I did something. I'm going to give an advertisement for a company called Dashlane. Uh, so we all have multiple subscriptions and multiple sort of register registrations on various services. 
And we tend to off use the same password all the time. Very dangerous. This company called Dashlane, it's like you have to pay a fee for it every month, provides you with a secure place to, to store all of your passwords. So I have, I think I have about 80 different registrations, you know, not subscriptions, but like, you know, where you might be registered with Aer Lingus or, you know, whatever, or, you know, Irish Rail for tickets, you know, and I have a different password for every single one automatically generated by Dashlane and securely held there. So, you know, it, I, I, that's a top tip because... You know, it's very easy. You're you're basically giving uh, your an opportunity on a plate to hackers if you have the same password for all of your services. Great shout out for Dashlane there. I think I might be, <laughs> might be getting getting onto that. Any hobby, hobbies or interests, Alan, outside of this work thing? Well, I've a, I've a lot of things that I that I do. Um, you know, at the weekends with the kids and everything like that. Um, particularly around the equestrian uh, world for one of my daughters. But my, the thing that I actually get the most out of personally in terms of my personal development is uh, reading uh, books, but also listening to books. And I think, again, a top tip that I would leave you with is that for me, a game changer was when I started to listen to business books uh, using audible.com because business books aren't page turners. Right, you're not going to jump into bed at night and read a business book. Um, however, most business books are about eight to ten hours long in, in terms of listening. And you know, I would do ten hours in the car, you know, at least every week or every week and a half, so I can get through a business book listening to a business book in the car uh, once every ten days. Now, I've been doing that for about four years you can build up an enormous amount of knowledge and it's really exciting and it becomes addictive. You could, might just get one nugget of information from the book that was well worth the 10 hours you invested in listening to it. So that's a top tip, I think. It's been transformational for me in terms of my understanding of things on the periphery of what I do for a living, but are still very helpful in building connections and joining the dots in relation to being good at strategy business strategy fantastic and you can bring stimulus in from different areas different codes of life and and, and it's always useful and an enjoyable way to consume consume information as well alan i just want to say thank you very much for for joining us today congratulate you on the role that you played within in terms of building such a high trust culture within core and all the different ups and downs of that journey um, I've learned a huge amount from seeing you in action with your, your leadership team and uh, really appreciate your partnership. So thanks for joining us, Alan. Well, Tola, if I could just uh, just echo that and say to you, Carl, that you've been a really important stakeholder in our success uh, in helping us and guiding us and giving us advice and, uh, you know, and examples and connecting us with other companies who are on the journey too. And I'd also like to make... Uh, to really call out Catherine Fitzgibbon, uh, our HR director, who has been, you know, hugely important in, in our growth and in the success of CORE. Um, and, you know, I think she's the single most important person within the organization in helping us get to where we are now in terms of our workplace culture. So thanks, Catherine. Thanks. Well done, Catherine. Every journey needs a warrior. And I think Catherine has really led the charge there in terms of the great work she, she has done. Alan, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Carl.
Red Cube listeners, thank you very much for joining us today. Please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already done so. And of course, leave us a review and tell us what topics would you like us to cover.